Okay, thank you so much for doing this, Ace. And um, why don't you let us know maybe like basic background, who you are and what do you do? Yeah, so my name's Ace Callwood. Um, I am, I, I suppose, a founder uh, might be the, uh, the, the most appropriate way to talk about uh, my, my profession. Um, but uh, I have built a couple companies over, over the years. I have a degree in entrepreneurship from VCU up here in Richmond, uh, go Rams, um, and have been involved in, you know, again, a, a number of startups, uh, a number of innovation projects. Uh, and I have been, I have worn the educator hat. So I taught entrepreneurship at my alma mater. I was the entrepreneur in residence and uh, focused on our senior capstone. Um, and then now I, uh, I run the pre-accelerator for the Da Vinci Center for Innovation, uh, also here at VCU, uh, but get to guest lecture around at UVA, Virginia State, uh, and, and elsewhere. So uh, part educator, uh, part speaker and facilitator, part founder. Um, but mostly helping people solve problems generally is uh, where I spend my time. And what were your interests as a kid? What were you like growing up? Um, I, 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 so, you know, via the, this format, you probably can't tell, but I am six uh, four, three 330 pounds. I'm just a large human. Um, I have always been, and then this is uh, pointed to my childhood was typically being a head taller than everybody and ending up in charge. Um, you know, just, just on stature alone. And that wasn't because I wanted to, uh, but that was, you know, the, the physicality of, of me as a being, I suppose, uh, has kind of put me in the mix. And I've, I've always been, I think, um, pretty articulate, which is like a weird thing to say out loud about oneself. But, uh, you know, I, I end up running my mouth and being in front of people often. And that started at an early age. Um, you know, my parents are both out of the Coast Guard Academy. Um, so military brat, which put me in, uh, in Chesapeake, uh, um, growing up, but did DC all the way down through Key West and back up the East coast. So moved a lot, which also very much informed how I interact with people. You know, you move every two years, you've got to find a best friend as soon as you get to a place. So you've got to be able to, to pitch yourself, if you will, as a child and say, Hey, I'm cool because this is why you should hang out with me. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like the military brat, the stature, uh, a lot of those elements have informed, you know, who I've become over the years. But uh, I think mostly it was, you know, having a, a strong family unit. Uh, dad was deployed all the time, but, uh, you know, mom and, and three little sisters around uh, regularly. Um, my mom is, uh, she did her master's at Berkeley in civil engineering. So she eats differential, differential equations for breakfast. Um, and I have literally never in my life won a Scrabble match against her. Uh, so, you know, just, just a, a really cool foundation um, from a family perspective. Um, and then there are, you know, little pieces in there. I, I was always an athlete. So um, soccer and wrestling were my two sports. Dabbled elsewhere, tennis, football, et cetera. But uh, I was a soccer player and a wrestler. And those two sports are diametrically opposed. So I went from one season to another. Uh, I had to be in nine minute shape for wrestling and then 90 minute shape for soccer. Um, but love sports, um, loved, you know, the camaraderie and running teams, um, kind of being in a leadership role on those teams. Um, and then I was homeschooled uh, my freshman year of high school. And so I, uh, I learned a ton there as my parents were buying businesses. I kind of grew up in the Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was the first business book I ever read. 
uh, we played cash flow as a family, Robert Kiyosaki's board game uh, on getting out of the rat race and, and making savvy investments. Um, and then being homeschooled, I got to watch my parents buy a multi-million dollar business. Uh, they had, you know, done real estate their entire lives. And that very much influenced how I think about passive income and opportunities. Um, so kind of had that entrepreneurial bent and a lot of leeway to be creative and do art and make music. Uh, I've played music my entire life. Um, and so, you know, a lot of little pieces that have informed who I am, um, as all of us have, but uh, those are some of the ones that track to, uh, I'd probably be a really bad employee, um, which I think I figured out early on. I've always been a contrarian and, and like to do the thing that uh, is off the beaten path. Um, and I had a lot of the structural pieces in education uh, from family as a foundation that have informed kind of who I am and what I do now. And what happened after high school? Where did you go? What did you do? Uh, yeah, so high school is probably actually a, a good place to start before we get to after high school. Um, I have always been a terrible student. Uh, I think I failed my first class in fifth grade because uh, my notebook wasn't in order um, and was never going to be. You know, I, I've been told by folks over the years that I have a low tolerance for minutia, which I think is, is very real. Um, and I, I'd imagine as we get to some of the things we've built and how that has worked out, um, we'll, we'll come back to this. But, you know, the, the details have never been my forte. Um, I like to say, you know, is it a penny or a nickel? I don't really care. Uh, the problem is, as that compounds over millions of dollars, I still don't care. Uh, so having somebody as a partner or a, a teammate to supplement, um, you know, some of my blind sides, if you subscribe to the strength finders kind of approach of do the things you do well, and then find people who do the complementary things well to supplement. Um, you know, it took me a long time to get to a place where I subscribe to that, uh, but I do today fully. So I, I was always a bad student is, <laughs> is where I started. Um, and, and so getting out of high school, you know, I applied to a um, couple colleges, you know, both of my parents have master's degrees, uh, you know, just, just education was, it was never a question on whether I'd go to college, it was a question of where. Uh, and quite frankly, I didn't have the grades to go anywhere I applied. Um, and so my best friend said, hey, I'm going to VCU. Uh, I'm not playing football in college. He said, you're not wrestling in college. Uh, both of us had opportunities to do so and decided not to. Um, and he said, I'm going to VCU. They have applications running through the summer. You ought to apply. Um, so I hadn't gotten into any of the places I applied. I applied to VCU, got in, and I think went to orientation like a week or two before school started. Um, so that was a, a fortuitous um, kind of circumstance. Uh, I, my mom told me I wasn't allowed to go to ODU because she didn't want to be close enough to drive from Chesapeake to Norfolk and bail me out of the jail. <laughs> Um, so that was, uh, the rationale. I, I wasn't allowed to go to ODU. VCU seemed like a really good, uh, you know, city environment and having grown up, started in DC, but grew up in the suburbs primarily or on base, um, moving into a city was really attractive to me. Uh, so I came to VCU, um, had a whole hellish freshman year in a very fun and probably dangerous looking back way, uh, too much party and too much playing, not enough class. Um, but yeah, I did my four years at VCU, uh, majored in entrepreneurship, um, and that, that very much set off a series of events in meeting my co-founder in the program, starting my first business, kind of charting a path that was, again, off the beaten path uh, through school uh, that, that set us up. And I'd imagine we'll get into some of those pieces, but it set me and, and my co-founder, Justin, up for 
um, some interesting successes and some painful losses, but uh, all good experience kind of into our career post-college. All right, that's awesome. And you mentioned your parents had bought a business. What was that business? And were you ever involved in that, like helping out or working there? Yeah, so they, um, you know, outside of real estate and, you know, their, their own entrepreneurial hustles over the years, um, they, they saw an opportunity to get into the Curves franchise. So if you remember the Curves uh, for women gyms, um, you know, my mom has always been a fitness nut. Both of them were collegiate athletes. And so that was near and dear to their heart in uh, a, an opportunity to help people think about health and fitness better uh, and an opportunity to buy a franchise that, you know, was, was really lucrative at the time. Um, so they, I believe, started that process in 06, 07 of scouting out territories. Uh, the year I was homeschooled, we lived in Barbados uh, for four or five months as they were figuring out if that was a territory that made sense. Um, you know, and that was great because my dad's from the islands, uh, so I'm West Indian on at least one side and being in the islands for a bit was, was awesome. Um, ultimately decided to buy back at home. So um, they purchased the Fairfield gym. Um, so right off Lord Dunmore, if you're familiar with the uh, Kempsville area, uh, they had the oh, yeah. curves right there. I know that's uh, your old stomping ground. Uh, yeah. So they own the curves right there. And then they bought the Salem uh, uh, franchise as well. Um, over in Salem, so right around the corner. Um, and I, I believe at the time Fairfield was the highest grossing curves in the country. Um, so they paid a premium for that. You know, I said multi-million bucks. Uh, I got to sit in the boardroom as they negotiated through that process. And it was kind of uh, part of my education being homeschooled. Um, that was 07. And for those of us who have some rudimentary recollection of history, uh, 08 was not the best economic time for any of us. Uh, that was as I was going off to college. Um, but the first thing that goes when you're, you know, in an economic downturn is your gym membership. You know, do I need to go to the gym or can I work out and do calisthenics and push-ups and, and run outside? Uh, that's typically the financial decision that folks make. Um, and so those, those businesses struggled and purely as a function of timing, um, not that you can predict that per se. Uh, maybe there are some economic indicators, but yeah, those, those businesses struggled in, you know, I've never been destitute by any stretch of the imagination, but, uh, you know, putting me through college and having three little sisters, it was a, a hairy time, kind of that 08, uh, you know, uh, around the time I graduated in 2012, uh, just as, as a family. Um, yeah, it was, it was tough. And, and, you know, that was by nature of buying a business at a good price in a good economic time. And then, uh, you know, getting blindsided by uh, a recession. So, uh, that was a real-time education for me and thinking about the parameters of business, seeing the the kind of deal flow happening in real time, but also seeing my parents operating those uh, those gyms. We ended up buying the gym in Western Branch as well, um, which is where I grew up. And so we bought kind of the local gym in our area. Um, but yeah, that was, that was tough. I think we foreclosed on a house in that time frame, the house I grew up in in DC, which, you know, uh, paid for most of my college, but uh, ended up foreclosing on that just having a ton of debt overhead in a business that wasn't performing. So, um, you know, that's the real raw gritty version of that story. Quite frankly, it sucked, um, but it informed, you know, what worst case scenario looks like and, and how you operate through that. Um, and those are things that I've had to apply to the businesses we've built over the years as well. No, that's a deep insight. Um, I'm very familiar with all those locations and I'm very familiar with that 
economic times. So, you know, to have that be a, uh, you know, kind of reality, I mean, it's almost like we're, we're there again now with uh, everything happening, but um, we'll get to that. So what was the first thing you did once you made it, uh, I guess, once you made it through VCU and, you know, your, your first job or your first experience, what did you do? What, what did you do next? Yeah, so we, um, we Justin, uh, who you will hear referenced uh, regularly, so my co-founder, Justin Kosler, um, Newport News kid, came to VCU. We met in the entrepreneur, entrepreneurship program. Um, we started our first business called Cycle Stay, and, you know, Hamilton, you and I were chatting about the bikes in the background. Um, you know, he's a big uh, cyclist as well, and, and we kind of bonded over that and realized... Um, realized that that we had an affinity for bicycles and uh richmond as you know an urban environment you just see i was joking about the hipsters you see a bunch of hipsters on fixies around town and that's that's a real kind of cultural piece of richmond um so the insight for us all of us had had bikes stolen over the course of college you know bikes just walk away or roll away i suppose uh in richmond um and so what we said is hey you know if we could better secure bikes, would that be valuable? Um, and the insight there was uh, some of the studies. This was right before the UCI race that came to Richmond, Richmond 2015. Uh, the city was gearing up for a big bike race and having an influx of cyclists and cycle supporters. And so what we said is, you know, based on the stats, 50% of cyclists would be more inclined to ride their bikes if they were comfortable with the way their bike was secured. Um, so it was kind of the early age of bike share. And we conceptualized a series of units called Cycle Stay Farms, um, where you effectively had the, the security features of a, a bike share, but you could put your personal bike into the unit. So the idea was use RFID or a, a key card from your business or your school to swipe into one of these units, secure your bike, walk away, and have full double wheel and frame security and a local alarm that would sound if that were tampered with. And then even probably an app component that said, this is where your bike is, this is where you left it, um, and it's still there. Um, so cycle stay as a concept made sense. If anybody wants a template or the business plan for that, I am happy to share because I think it ought to <laughs> still exist. Um, but for two of us as, um, uh, for two of us as suits coming out of a business school with very little engineering experience, you know, this I think was our junior and senior year we worked on this. Uh, and rolled it into our senior capstone project in the program. Um, that was the first thing that we tried to build. Um, ultimately, you know, the prototyping and just the physical hardware space for us didn't move fast enough. You got a prototype, you got to design and prototype and redesign and reprototype and then take it to production and figure out how to scale that. Um, you know, we, we, uh, patience is not necessarily a virtue that the two of us, uh, have between us. Um, so it just was a slow moving process and really cumbersome to get the technology and the power sources and all of those together. Um, so, you know, that's a long way of saying we ran cycle stay from junior year to about a year after school. We had some early prototypes put together, but never truly commercialized that in the way we wanted to and pulled the plug uh, shortly after we graduated, I think maybe six to 12 months after school. So early, mid-2013 uh, was about the time we pulled the plug and moved on to other projects. And it, was that like a bootstrap project or did you raise any funding and how did you kind of transition to the next uh, experience? 
Yeah, so we um, we won a bunch of funding. We won our senior capstone project, uh, senior capstone class. We won the university-wide business plan competition for undergrads. Um, and then we got into a couple, uh, a couple other business plan comps. Um, so we, we, what we realized is, you know, as a team, we had a really solid foundation for getting people excited about a project, uh, i.e. pitching our way into to some money. Uh, but on the execution front for that specific project, it was a little further outside of our wheelhouse and a little further outside of kind of the, the economic resources we had at our disposal at the time. Um, so I think at the same time I was, we were interning and I think we had like four jobs. Um, so I was, uh, the university asked us to come back and redevelop curriculum for the entrepreneurship program uh, because we had gone above and beyond. You know, we'd skip class to go to Venture Forum, which was kind of the local association for, for entrepreneurs in town. Uh, you know, we'd cut class to go talk to a design team or prototyping firm. Um, and we just inform our process. That's what we were doing. We were taking the learnings of the business school and, and applying that tangibly. And so they asked us to come back and kind of institutionalize that for the students going through the program uh, in the way we did. And so we added internships. We built what we call a bridge fund to, to put students in startups and then flip the bill for the startups to have the students in moving the needle. Um, got to build some cool programming in the university system. Uh, we were interning at an innovation firm at the time as well, um, thinking about a host of projects for clients. Um, I was working five to midnight at a law firm doing, uh, you know, just menial work is what it felt like. It was just data entry, but, you know, it paid decently and allowed me to work five to midnight and then kind of wear my CEO and founder hat during the day. Um, and, and, you know, and through all of that, the paid and unpaid, I was still broke somehow. Um, so I, uh, I ended up quitting the law firm with really no plan, no backup um, and saying, hey, I'm going to focus more of my time in the university. Um, and so I was making eight bucks an hour working 20 hours a week. And if you do the math, I think that, that tallies to not shit for money <laughs> um, is, is about where we were. Um, but, you know, it was one of the most just fulfilling times that I have had. And that's not one of those salesy. It was like I was working, I was doing stuff that I loved with teams that were just incredible. Um, and that was more important than, you know, not making money. Um, to my mom's chagrin, I think, you know, she was saying job isn't a four letter word. You're allowed to have a job that pays you. And I was like, but I want to build stuff. Um, so through that time period, my car got towed. It was sitting in a lot that I wasn't paying for and it wouldn't turn on. Um, so they towed my car and by the time I got the bill, it was like 1200 bucks that I didn't have. And I told him to keep it. Um, and then I ended up riding my bike for the next two or three years, uh, throughout town. And so, you know, those are, I look back at those times fondly. They were, they were rough. They were real. There were days when I was turning on, you know, flipping the light switch in the morning just to make sure the lights were still on. Cause I was picking one or two bills a month to pay. Um, but you know, I look, I, again, look back on those fondly and, uh, I, I write on medium used to write more frequently, but I wrote a piece called rock bottom, um, won't kill you. Uh, and the, the basic premise was that time really informed, you know, that things can suck and it, it literally won't kill you. Um, because I've been at rock bottom. I'm not scared of that anymore. And that I think has informed how I take more outsized risks, uh, today as I, as I mature. So, um, that was kind of that time period. And that leads up to starting Coffitivity, which I'm, I'm sure we'll chat about a little bit as well. Yeah, for sure. And so you're at rock bottom. <clears throat> what changes? What do you do differently? What type of 
activities are you engaged in that start your uh your your ascent or what what was it that maybe well what mindset did you take that and i think you you just touched on it when you said um that you've kind of already overcome that fear of almost you know at being at rock bottom so now like that's going to inform outsize risk return reward analysis so like how do you how do you think about what got you through that period and got you to the next step yeah no i think that's that's an excellent question um i think a couple things are true right like that as humans we're wired to uh avoid pain right like uh, pain receptors do not like being activated and if we avoid all of the things that activate our pain receptors we're generally happier or so we think right uh, you know no pain no gain is the the kind of inverse of that and and i think that's very true but as as a, a general rule we try to avoid pain and you know the the social pain of failure is real and typically we try to avoid that um and the you know the the economic pain of failing at a thing and not having enough money and the subsequent stress that comes with that is also real and a thing we try to avoid um if you've been there either by design accident uh, you know what that's like and you know that you can survive it and that really for me has informed a lot of how i'm able to operate today is like you know I, i i got to that place where i didn't have cash and you know that was still as my family was recovering from some of the economic uh, stuff that happened there with curves etc uh, so it wasn't like i had the safety net that you know still very privileged still have a place that i can go if i'm destitute i'll never be on the street and i'm i'm fortunate for that um but i still wasn't able to say hey mom can you cover my rent right um and uh, there are a lot of people who cannot do that and so you know i think we talk about entrepreneurship from an academic perspective as people who uh you know take outside his risks and and from an ac- academic perspective what we'd say is entrepreneurs don't necessarily have a higher tolerance for risk as much as we mitigate risk better um so in that a lot of the activity that i think i was i was putting forth uh even as i was you know not making a ton of money was acad- activity that uh tracked towards mitigating risks right every connection every mentorship every opportunity every free internship that i took uh started to pad my resume and put me in a place where you know at this point in my life i have one not used my resume for any of my jobs they've been all you know connections through really talented people and secondly you know i joke with my co-founder we'll be terrible employees but we can we're highly employable you know at this point just doing the the work has put me in a place where i don't know that i'll ever not be able to find the next opportunity and convince somebody to pay me well for it um that all was foundational at a time where i was 20 21 you know i could survive on you know streets uh, as i call it just you know a slice of pizza from the little bodega um and and you know not have too many negative repercussions on my health and well-being um so it was just a time in my life where i could be scrappy and make those decisions that has put me in a place now where i can be a little bit more stable um and continue to operate um so two things happened in that time frame for one we started our second business and secondly um you know i hustled my way into a $50,000 grant from the president of VCU uh to fund my position at the university so i went from 8 bucks an hour at 20 hours a week to a 40 some thousand dollar job with a little bit of cash to run programs 
Um, and secondly, we started Coffitivity. And again, the experience of Cycle Stay and, and some of uh, the other places where we were, uh, Justin and I got to a point where we said we'd never start another business we couldn't execute on. And that, uh, you know, there were some requisite skills to, to be able to make that true. Namely, Justin taught himself how to code and I jumped into communications. Um, and, and what we, you know, being in the university, we were nerding out on white papers. We found a white paper that effectively said sitting in a coffee shop boosts your creativity because a moderate level of ambient noise is conducive to creative cognition, uh, which very simply means having a tiny bit of chatter and clatter and distraction while we're working gets our creative juices flowing because our brain isn't focused too much on the task at hand and we get the ambient noise to distract us a little bit so our brain can solve problems more creatively rather than being hyperlogical about solutioning. Um, what we did was we built our first website and we called it Coffeeativity. So coffee and creativity slammed together into one name. Uh, we recorded the sounds of coffee shops. I mentioned I did music growing up, so I had Pro Tools and, and music software. Uh, we took the raw audio from coffee shops in Richmond put that into my program, cleaned it up a little bit. And then we built a virtual coffee shop effectively, a website that played coffee shop sounds, the chatter, the clatter, the background sounds of a cafe. And we put it on the internet at a time when I think Rainy Mood was really the only ambient sound site out there. So this was early March, 2013. So almost, uh, almost seven years to the date uh, ago. Um, so yeah, we launched Coffitivity, and the first day we had 120 page views, um, which means my mom and Justin's mom looked at the site 60 times a piece, if I did that math <laughs> right. Um, the second day we had 49,000 page views. Um, wow. I remember Justin's boss at the university saying, hey, you need to go sort this out. Um, clearly you have a lot on your plate, you, you, you should leave. Um, and so Justin came down to the School of Business where I was teaching at the time, and we, I remember sitting in the atrium of the School of Business, um, you know, in a meta sense, it, it's one of the places we recorded it as well. So we used the raw audio of Coffitivity to build the website. We launched the website in the place that we recorded the audio. Um, and, and we just, we had to pay our hosting. We were on a shared server. We paid to get to a, um, to get to a, a, a dedicated uh, server. And we continued growing the site. And we ended up on Times Top 50 Sites of the Year, PC Mag's Top 100 Sites of the Year. Uh, we did an interview in um, uh, New York Times, Inc. Magazine, um, Mashable, The Next Web, Popular Science. And this was all in the span of like a month and a half that you know, this thing went viral. <laughs> um, it was just an insane time. And so, you know, had gotten a little bit of stability at the university. Justin took a job at our tech transfer office doing the same type of work. Um, and then we launched Profitivity. And again, I mean, all of the things that were tough and hard and, you know, we went through in school informed being in a position where we were at the university with some solid cash, just funding our lives. And then, you know, just hustling through what was a project in Profitivity to learn some things. Ultimately, you know, padded our resume as an awesome project, but turned into a business that, you know, generated uh, generated some income for us and, you know, paid for beer I think that summer is uh, is the kind of cash we made but um, yeah it was it was a wild ride and that was 2013 2014 you know just having graduated school having this global I think we, we've been used in all but one country in the world 
Um, at this point, we've got 14 or 15 million folks who have touched the product. Um, you know, that started as two guys who didn't know a thing about web development and marketing um, outside of what we learned in school, uh, launching a, a globally recognized website um, that was never intended to scale past us and, you know, buddies of ours. Uh, so kind of thrown into the mix and we had to figure out how to manage that appropriately. And what was the cat, the key traffic driver to the site? Was it, this is such a solution that, I mean, it would be nice to hear some of that right now, you know, uh, some of yeah. the coffee, uh, background ambient noise. Is it, there was so much raw search engine traffic, uh, keywords that that was already a thing or like, were you guys running a page strategy? Like, did you have a crazy video? Like, what do you think made you go from 100 people in a day to 49,000 to 15 million? What kind of growth hacking uh, for any of our listeners that are, uh, you know, they have something today that they're trying to, you know, they're trying to make it, make it happen on TikTok or they're trying to make it happen on, uh, you know, maybe it's on Instagram stories. I mean, there's different clever ways I'm seeing people are getting their stuff you know, in the feed more, what do you think it is? Yeah, I, I, at the time it wasn't even, uh, even nearly that technical. Um, so again, this was, you know, uh, for one, it, during this global pandemic, I think we're up 250, 300% right now. Um, so the fact that people are working from home, you know, is in a, 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 a unintentional and unintended, but interesting kind of time for us with that product, which we still run today. It's, it's generally been on autopilot uh, while we focused on other, other businesses and projects, but uh, yeah, an interesting time now for that media property. Um, and we're recalibrating a bit and, uh, you know, communicating with our audience, which is cool. Um, but at the time this was 2013, it was pre product hunt, you know, where a lot of people launch products, mm. you get a product hunt and, and launch. Um, but you know, it, it was really this analog on the internet, but analog in considering where are the 10 people who are like us, who this would resonate with. Uh, and you know, when I talk about scalability in a classroom setting and I talk about going to the market and figuring who your target demo is and doing the Tam Sam Psalm and like all of those technical pieces, um, with respect to competitivity and I, I, I drive this home a lot. It was an accident, a pleasant <laughs> one. Uh, but it was an accident in that we were not designing for anybody but us. What we did well, and this is this part was not accidental. I think it was well thought out. Um, but it was a see what happens. We took the thing that resonated with us, and we said, "Where are all, all of the people who are like us? Where do they live? What do they do? Where do they spend their time?" And the answer at the time was Hacker News. Um, it was Y Combinator's upvote downvote site, as we all remember, kind of the the Reddit for the, the techies, which Reddit has turned into, but Hacker News was the venue at the time to share the thing. Um, and so we put it on Hacker News, we shared with our personal networks via Facebook, which we were still pretty active on at the time. Um, I think pre-Instagram, not pre-Instagram product, but it wasn't the venue in which you'd share something like this. So it was Facebook and Hacker News, and we ended up on the front page of Hacker News for like three or four days. Um, that was, I think, the, I don't think, I know for a fact that was the number one driver, but that's where uh, the, the kind of second tier publications picked us up after that. So it was Mashable, Popular Science, and, and The Next Web. Um, those guys picked us up, and then the big dogs, uh, Inc. Magazine, Entrepreneur, New York Times, Time Magazine, 
Um, so it was kind of that tier, but you know, we didn't drive that as much we as much as we put it in the right place. And I think Peter Thiel or Paul Graham says this, right? Find 10 people who love your product and get them to tell two of their friends, right? Like that idea of really small scale virality, find a couple people who love what you do, find more people like them and get them to share it. Um, and for us, it was, we were the first two people that loved it. It was actually a team of four at the time, uh, Tommy and Nicole uh, were involved in, in building it and are no longer active, but will always have that kind of claim to fame. But yeah, it was uh, the four of us shared with our homies who were like us, who were designers and developers and entrepreneurs. Uh, and we put it in the place that we spent all of our time looking for the next thing. Um, and it kind of did the work from there. We had to keep that up and we thought about you know, bounce rate and some of our analytics and, and where people were throughout the world. Um, so like once we got into the saddle, uh, we, we, we kind of settled into things. But realistically, the horse was dragging us for, for the first couple of weeks and we just had to keep up. Um, so that's a long answer to a short question, but that's, that's how we thought about it. And that can be replicated. I think there's a, a lot of signal to noise to kind of parse uh, now with the, you know, the ability of makers to jump in and, and launch things and put content out. And so I think we're inundated with content. It's harder to cut through some of the noise with real signal. Um, I, I think it was just a, a, a just less stressful and content-driven time in 2013, which feels like a lifetime ago now. Um, but I think it was just a more straightforward path to let's get this new thing out. Um, a little harder to do now, but I think the same mechanics apply. Find people who love it, get them to share it. Yeah, no, that's great. So what what did you go on to do after that? What was like... What, what experience uh, followed that? Yeah, yeah. So Confectivity uh, obviously is still active today. So it's been a long running project. But uh, we, we, we did a couple things. First, we used the platform and the audience we had built, uh, accidental or not, you know, uh, I, uh, lucky or not, right? And I talk about luck a lot. And a lot of people do. It's being in the right time, at the right place, with the right resources or something like that. Um, I've always said you create your own luck. And so for us, it was just keep hustling until the right thing hits. And that's what we did to get to Coffitivity. It blew up on its own accord. Um, but once we had a captive audience, highly engaged, right? We had a 50% return rate. So for two people who came to the site, one came back. Um, what we realized is there was a high level of engagement and it kind of took a life of its own. Um, so we started, we, uh, I'll throw this in the mix for what helped it grow. We leaned heavily on the science. Right. Like you can launch a product and say this is the efficacy of the product. But if you launch a product and say this is the efficacy, this is the practical application of real science that is peer reviewed in a different venue. Um, who knows societally how much credence we put towards science anymore. Uh, but at the time, we leaned heavily on the science that was first and foremost on the site. This is what we say it does. But this is the science behind that substantiates it. Um, so like once we had built that audience of people resonated and connected, we started talking to people, right? Like never stop doing customer development was, was kind of ingrained from having an entrepreneurship degree. Um, so we said, hey, who are you? What kind of work do you do? How do you identify, you know, in your professional life? Uh, so on and so forth. And we put out a survey. And I think in a day we had gotten 2,000 responses and that continued to grow. Uh, but some of the questions were, what kind of tools do you use, physical, digital? Um, you know, are they pencils and pens to use a Wacom tablet? You know, 
what tools do you use, Coffitivity included, to, to get your mind right and get into the zone and working, um, Pomodoro timers, et cetera. And then ultimately, what could make your life better? And what we found is that 60% of our audience was domestic, um, you know, international audience, but a lot were here stateside. Um, a, a large portion, you know, 60 or 70% identified as independent contractors or independents, freelancers, if you will. Um, and a lot of them said, hey, we're not financial experts. If you could sort out the finances for us, we'd be able to focus better on the work that we know and love. Um, and then that kind of dovetailed into two areas. Uh, one of the developers who built uh, the Coffitivity app got hit with a $15,000 tax bill because he had been self-employed for the year and had crushed it. Um, and then the, the last piece is all of my work in refing soccer growing up to working for the army as a contractor kind of end of high school and through college. Um, you know, those experiences as a 1099 contractor informed kind of this perfect storm of we have an audience that's captive at coffeeativity telling us what they need. We have a colleague, a good friend who has had this critical experience in a tax bill that was really hard for him to write that check. And then lastly, my experience of living in the independent world uh, through most of the revenue generating activity that I had done growing up um, got us to a place where we said, can we make the experience of being self-employed more palatable by automating tax withholding? Um, and, and that, as, as I know, Hamilton, you're, you're familiar, we built a product called Painless 1099. Um, so it was a smart bank account for independent contractors. We partnered with a bank. We built a tax algorithm uh, to calculate based on some parameters that we could get from the user. Uh, and we, we built an FDIC insured account that as soon as a deposit hit, we calculate and separate tax obligation and then send what was left over to your personal checking account. Um, so think tax withholding for independent contractors and freelancers. Um, that was the product we built. We ended up partnering with MetLife and Goldman Sachs and a couple others um, to build what we call the, worst, the world's first portable benefits package. Um, and I've always subscribed to the idea that it shouldn't matter who you're employed by uh, to dictate how you get benefits and some of the social safety net um, that, that you know, is afforded to the majority of, of folks who work in the country. Unfortunately, freelancers have been a historically overlooked and underserved demographic. And we said, if we can solve this problem for the 53 million people who earn independent contract income, uh, we, we might be on to something. Um, so Coffitivity was kind of the direct throughput into informing the next opportunity. Uh, and we capitalized on that in early 2015, started the company. Um, and that has been a wild journey as well, which I'm, I'm sure we'll chat about a little bit. Yeah, no, that's great. It's a lot of questions from that, so I'm going to try to focus it. So, Painless 1099, how did you partner with uh, MetLife, Goldman Sachs? What Maybe talk about how, how you established those type of partnerships. Yeah, a, a, a kind of a lot happened between point A and point Z, if you will. Um, so, first, we spent the first month and a half uh, almost two months of 2015 saying, is this a real opportunity? Should we go build the thing? Um, so I'd hang out at coffee shops, you know, a la the coffeeativity mindset. And I'd see people, you know, pull up their computer and open, you know, Sketch or Photoshop or, you know, some of the design programs or, you know, pull up a terminal and start slinging lines of code. 
and I'd say, hey, it looks like you're, you're a freelancer. Is that true? Uh, can I chat for 10 minutes? And so we did our customer development in real time. Of course, we talked to our peers who also did that type of work. But, uh, you know, a lot of it was just hustling through, uh, making sure we weren't wasting our life, which is, uh, I won't take credit for that phrasing. That's uh, my good buddy, Tommy, who is also a founder of Built Coffitivity with us. You know, he wrote a piece uh, effectively saying, the number one goal is to not waste your life. So let's do all of the legwork up front to make sure we're building the right thing for people who, as I tell my students, are willing to take our money out of their pocket and hand it to us, right? Like that's the way I frame it. Can I get my money out of your pocket as an entrepreneur? And, and if I haven't figured out how to do that, I don't have a business, I have a hobby, I have a product uh, or a project. Um, it's only until there's some economic uh, transaction that we, we have a business. And so that's the goal is, should this be a business or is this just a fun side project? Um, so we did the legwork to do that. We got into Lighthouse Labs here in Richmond. So an accelerator, they're a top tier accelerator in, in the local community. Um, got into Lighthouse Labs. We got 20K non-dilutive to build our first version of the product. Um, so didn't give in, up any equity for that. Um, and at the same time, Tommy from Coffitivity and a good buddy, Charles, were building a fintech product, financial technology at the time. And so they were helpful in expediting our relationship with the bank, which was the first thing we needed to be able to offer bank accounts. So we got the bank deal done in roughly six months, which is fast. Uh, typically takes 12 to 18 months to, to do that. We just happen to have really sharp guys and a really big opportunity um, that, that that convergence expedited the process of getting the bank in. Um, from there, we wrapped up Lighthouse Labs and had gotten into the top 10 of a program called 43 North up in Buffalo. Uh, so they call themselves the world's largest business uh, idea competition, uh, which was true. I think they had 11,000 applicants um, the year we went through. They narrowed it down to the top 10 of which we were one, which was just incredible for us um, and a series of pitching well and having a big opportunity at the right time when everybody was talking about the gig economy. So the, the timing was real for us. Um, and we ended up being runners up in 43 North. So we won half a million bucks. The caveat was we had to relocate to Buffalo for a year, which we did. Um, so we moved our team up to Buffalo beginning of 2016, went through this program for a year. Um, and then mid-year, we got into Techstars, which for the tech entrepreneurs, most of us are familiar with Techstars as one of the top two accelerators in the country, uh, arguably the world. Um, so we got into the Barclays Techstars program. Barclays Bank sponsored. We were in Manhattan. So I, I left half the team in Buffalo, took the other half to, to Manhattan, um, and went through the Techstars program. All of those came with money, obviously, but this is tracking to how we got those partnerships in place. Um, MetLife uh, was sponsoring another Techstars program, and we got connected with the chief innovation officer at, um, at the... Um, the Met or the Techstars annual conference for founders, they call it FounderCon. So we were out in Cincinnati, connected with the CIO of MetLife. I literally have a picture. He didn't have any cards, so he wrote his contact info on a page and held it up. And I have a picture of him holding a page with his contact <laughs> still on my phone. Uh, that was the first connection with MetLife. It took us every bit of a year to get to a place where we were piloting uh, term life insurance with those guys. Um, on the Goldman side, there was a, a, a fintech product, a retirement product called Honest Dollar that started in Austin. I had a, a buddy who had gone through Techstars in Austin, 
connect us after South by Southwest. Um, and I got connected with, I think, the chief security officer uh, from Honest Dollar. They had just got acquired by Goldman. And so we ended up rolling a, rolling a partnership together with uh, Goldman Sachs to get uh, retirement products offered through Painless as well. Um, so it was kind of, again, you know, I, I keep coming back to all of the legwork that feels like it's not going anywhere is building relationships and connections. Um, you know, I think a, a, an important time to say of the first 100,000 we raised in Richmond, friends and family, people writing us two to, you know, 10 or $15,000 checks. I think 85, 90% of those folks who wrote us checks were painless in 2015 were people we met in 2010, 2011 and were mentors for cycle stay, the thing that didn't work, um, which led us to let's never build another product we can't execute on. So we built Coffitivity, which led us to let's interview the people who gave us an insight on independent contracting and finances that got us to painless and then full circle back to all the people we met as mentors during cycle stay. Uh, you know, some of those people we kept relationship, relationships with wrote us checks for painless. Um, so just, uh, again, kind of this crazy process that you don't see when you're in the weeds. And I can assure you it didn't feel like this at the time. I make it sound great as I talk through the narrative. Uh, but at 50,000 feet, it's really easy to see that the right work there was hustling into getting to a place where painless made sense and people were willing to support. Yeah, no, that, that's a lot of ground we just covered. So yeah, Lighthouse Labs, Techstars, 43 North, you got non-dilutive funding, you got some dilutive funding, I'm assuming with the Techstars. Yep. I don't know the 43 North situation. Tell me what you learned, maybe like, give me a couple bullets from each one of these kind of, I mean, they're accelerators, they're, you know, yeah. communities. What, what, what's so special about Lighthouse? What's so special about Techstars, uh, the Barclays, um, yep. you know, program, and then the 43 <clears throat> North? Um, yeah. I, I just would be curious. And what type of... I mean, obviously, you're already, you're super accomplished. And like you say, everything's been building, everything's been, you're laying, you know, bricks. You're, so by the time you're applying to this stuff, I mean, you're networked in to some degree, but maybe, maybe speak on some of the, some of the preparation, if at all, that you did, like, along the way to get into Lighthouse or to get in, like, how did you interview? How did you uh, you know, how did you finesse kind of 43 North and tech stars together? I mean, cause I'm thinking you have to stay in Buffalo cause that's the part of the deal, but then you figure out you can still break away, you know, maybe talk about like that time, like the learnings from that yeah. and how you, how you worked it all. Yeah. So, uh, I'll, I'll go back really briefly to that grant I mentioned we got from the president of the university, um, to do my entrepreneurship work at VCU. Um, that experience really informed how you go pitch and sell, for me at least, right? Um, so I had to go find all the administrators and all the stakeholders throughout the university, which, you know, the bureaucracy of academia is, uh, is a whole beast in and of itself. Um, but getting in the right room to a place where they wrote, I think, $10,000, $50,000 grants across the entire university, and we got one of them, uh, that was legwork quite frankly, that was building relationships, getting in the room and saying, hey, this is the value, right? How do I get my money out of your pocket? Like you have to provide enough value. Um, 
And as, as we define entrepreneurship in the academic realm, the pursuit of opportunity without regard for resources currently controlled, right? It has no element of innovation, no element of doing something that hasn't been done. Uh, it's simply seeing an opportunity, pursuing that and saying, I may not have the uh, skill set, right? I'll uh, teach yourself code to build competitivity. I may not have the money. I'll uh, go get yourself in the tech stars, get some funding and, and resources. Um, I may not have the time. I'll uh, quit your law firm job and not make any money to go make the next thing work. Um, you know, I, I think all of those things are real and and reasonable to consider given the the definition. And so, you know, I think I put that into practice with the the grant from the president's office. Uh, but all of the other things looked really similar, right? It's figure out who is connected, who's doing interesting work, spend time with them, build relationships. It sounds Machiavellian, right? The the idea that like go find the people you need to be around in order to be successful. Um, it is, I suppose. I just don't know that that's 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 a bad thing, right? Like that's what we all ought to be doing. Is if we're the smartest person in the room, we're in the wrong room. Like that adage, I think is right. And so it started with Lighthouse, and you know, it's it's um, you get into Lighthouse Labs because we've got relationships with the people in Richmond, the executive director who ended up writing us a check for Painless as well. You know, like you find the right people in the community to support and you get plugged in and go, go do great work with those people. Um, so, you know, we, we hustled and pitched our way and I'm grabbing my computer charger so we, uh, we don't lose each other. Um, yeah, that's great. <laughs> you, you, you hustle and pitch your way into uh, a good relationship with the right stakeholders and for us, that was the executive director and the, the, the committee at Lighthouse. Uh, once we got into Lighthouse, you know, we looked at all of the similar opportunities um, in acceleration and incubation and innovation. Um, and I, I think Facebook ads put us on to 43 North and my co-founder sent me the application and I applied. Um, and it was just kind of a random like, this seems like a low, th the, the path of least resistance is put an application in. And once you've applied to Lighthouse, you've got kind of a templated application on value prop and target demo and competition. And so like I have a folder in Google Drive somewhere that just has all of the applications we submitted to everything. And a lot of them where you copy and paste this thing and it's a different character limit. So you figure out how to say, say the same thing in less words. But, you know, we kind of process sized uh, the the application process so applied to 43 North um, and we got to the semi-final round I think a narrative from 11,000 to um, maybe a thousand or so and then they narrowed it down to 250 and we got through that round and it was all virtual pitches it was literally pitching the product via you know Skype or Zoom or whatever um, like this and then with Techstars that was a little different um, you know, the, if, if at first you don't succeed, et cetera, et cetera, Techstars was like that. You know, we had in our head that Techstars made sense. Uh, the the coffeeativity buddy, Tommy, who I mentioned, had gotten into Techstars with his next FinTech product. Um, and so I met the managing director of Techstars that he was working with. Um, she was great, uh, became a mentor. We kept in touch over the course of the year, but didn't get into her program initially. Uh, I applied, I think we applied to like four or five other programs. We did final interview with Boulder, New York City, um, and Seattle. So we flew out to, to Seattle. We didn't get into any of those programs. So 
I think we, we, we took L's on like four or five application cycles through Techstars. And then interestingly enough, like we say in the startup world, draw lines, not dots, right? Like give a data point, give another data point, give another data point to relevant stakeholders and allow them to draw the trend line that's ideally up and to the right. Uh, with Jenny, the managing director of Techstars, we just drew a bunch of dots, right? We got connected when we were first thinking about painless and shared what we were thinking about and she blew holes in it. Uh, we went through a couple application cycles through Techstars. We, we took those L's. We kept up with Jenny. We kept up with Lighthouse. We, we helped Jenny draw some lines. And so ultimately, um, when the next application cycle came through, I think we were in the short list. We were probably not going to get in and they had a team bail. And like we were top of mind for Jenny to say, hey, these guys ought to be in the program. Um, so that got us in. And then again, if you create enough value, we went to 43 North and Techstars and said, hey, we're in two programs right now. But the relationship between your programs and our ability to go get fintech specific help at Techstars while we have the financial help of half a million bucks at 43 North, it's valuable for both of your programs for us to run a dual track. Um, and that was kind of how we presented it. So again, long answer to short question, but we thought about some of those pieces uh, and how they connected and, and we really presented it in a way, which is what we do as founders is frame the problem and the solution in a way that resonates with the audience. Um, I think we were just able to do that well. Um, and we were winning money elsewhere. We won 50 grand from K4 Capital that was non-dilutive as well. Um, you know, we just made sure we were in every room at all of the times um, to, to share the narrative of Painless. Um, and as we get to kind of the conclusion of that product uh, in that we pulled the plug, ultimately we couldn't scale it. And we can talk a little bit about why and how that made sense. But, you know, I think the early legwork to get in the room and get the thing off the ground uh, and run it for five years, I, I think we did a lot of those things right. Yeah, no, that's great how maybe briefly touch on the k4 capital uh grant and then maybe round it out with how you how did you how did you close it or how did you leave it and um you know kind of move on to the next endeavor yeah yeah um so the so k4 capital that was kind of in the the stream of all of the things we were doing um you know so with 43 north we kind of became the poster children of uh, of that program in that they were sending me to conferences to, you know, talk about the program, but also talk about painless. And it was great marketing and kind of free airfare. So I think I hit, uh, I hit status on JetBlue in the course of like a month. Um, nice. You know, that also means I was on the road. You talk about some of the sacrifices that entrepreneurs make. You know, I think I slept in my bed three or four times in the course of as many months. Um, so it was just, you know, living two, three weeks out of a suitcase, which, you know, I think I was, I was 25 when we started Painless, so, you know, young and still pretty dumb. I don't know how much of the latter has changed um, up till now, <laughs> but uh, less young now. Uh, but yeah, just, you know, endless energy and it was great. I was on the road. I was meeting new people. I was building the network, all of which is important today in the same way cycles stay translated to Painless. Um, so we, KPOR was one of the things. We got into Village Capital's accelerator at the same time we were in uh, Techstars in 43 North. Um, fortunately, Vilcap wasn't, uh, Vilcap was not residential. So they ran one program for a couple of days in New York City in the same building we were at Techstars in. 
So I was oh, bouncing wow. between sixth floor and second floor, just serendipitously. Um, the second session was in Richmond of all places. And so we got to go back to Richmond for a week and all of the mentors for that program were investors of ours already. Um, and then the last program was out in San Francisco at the same time I was doing demo days. So we did some dividing and conquering to get that handled. Uh, but that network connected us with uh, Mitch and Frieda Kapoor, um, who run the Kapoor Center, and as you're familiar with. Um, and they had a competition called their People Ops competition. Um, so People Operations, which doesn't seem like it connects with Painless, but we kind of shoehorned our way into that. Um, what they, what the general premise is People Operations is how do we better interact with the people who make our organizations go? And the way I position Painless is, this is a great way to interact with the people who make your organization go, specifically your independent contractors. So we ended up kind of in this HR and finance and you know benefits world, and we were straddling all three um, with a little bit of insurance thrown in there. Uh, but from an HR perspective, it made a lot of sense to go out to KCOR. We, we won the competition. I think they had 100 grand. They cut it down to $150,000 check two $25,000 checks. Um, and we were competing against, from a competitive advantage standpoint, going to a, an HR competition, competing with a financial product against a bunch of HR products. Um, it just gave us a leg up, quite frankly. Uh, we, were the, we were the different guys in the room. And we beat some companies that are still alive today. Uh, I want to like, be really um, intentional about putting words to that. There are companies that are still alive doing really well that we were flashier and sexier and more interesting than uh, that allowed us to win a lot of money. We hustled our way into a million and a half, almost two million bucks. Um, but a lot of it was like being different, which is both helpful. Um, the downside is we didn't get the economics to work. It costs a lot of money to run a bank. Um, it costs a lot of money to, to acquire users into a financial product. And we just couldn't get the lifetime value of that customer to sync with a CAC that was palatable. So we were paying too much to acquire a user and not making enough in the long run, which is a really simple way of saying the business didn't work. Um, I've always said startups are a war of attrition. You know, if you can exist longer than the next guy, you'll win. Hmm. That is true. I think when we got to the five-year mark, we lost a $3 million deal that we had in hand. Uh, we had pivoted away from a million and a half dollar deal to pursue the the bigger one, uh, and that made sense for us and our investors. Uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. Maybe we should have taken the smaller deal, and maybe we'd still be alive. Who knows? Um, but we also ultimately got to a place where we had a big corporate pull the plug on a. We were raising three million on a ten million dollar valuation, and they wanted uh, the option to what buy series? us in twenty four months. Um, so we had raised. Here's, here's a, a core piece of painless. Part of our issue is we never had an anchor tenant on our cap table, right? Like we had hustled through a bunch of programs. We also did 630 FinTech in 2017. So this was after all the other accelerators. So we did five programs total, four of which came with money. Um, but programs write you a check and they're not doubling down unless you are absolutely killing it, right? Like their model is to write a check. Hopefully those projects get funded elsewhere and they it's grow an in Exactly. Um, you know, for us, we ended up in a place where we never had the institutional investor or the, you know, traditional VC who could say, we'll float you another quarter million bucks to bridge or pivot your way into the next thing. Uh, we had a bunch of programs who 
once they wrote us a check, that was all we got. Um, so if I were to do it again, you know, the upside of the programs is our cap table looks great. You know, Justin and I, I think total together own 70% of the company still. Um, and we had raised, you know, a little under 2 million bucks. Um, but ultimately taking a little bit more dilution in the, in the short term would have extended our options as we could go back to our investors and say, you know, hey, can you write us another check? We had a bunch of early investors who wrote $10,000 checks. You know, do they throw in another 10000 and does that get, up enough, get us enough money to increase our runway and stay operational? Um, the answer was no. And so when that $3 million check disappeared, which was, it would have been an A um, or a, a late seed, uh, when that $3 million deal disappeared, it was right before Thanksgiving 20, 2018. Um, and, you know, we were at a skeleton team already trying to deliver on product. Uh, and we just didn't have the juice, quite frankly, especially going into the holidays where no VCs are plugged in. There, there was not a way to raise money at that point. Um, and I, I hesitate to say not a way, right? There's always a way. I think at the end of five years, the last two of which were mostly me being rate, out raising money full time, throwing a fifty dollars or $100,000 check back at the team and going back on the road to raise again. We never got time to get our feet under us. And outside yeah. of the half a million bucks we had up front, we had never really had one large sum of money at one time to say, let's get down in the weeds for 12 to 18 months and then go raise another round. I was just kind of perpetually raising through painless, which quite frankly sucked. And, and if I were to do it again, I'd do it a lot differently. Um, so we, as of uh, end of 2019, uh, shut down our last bank account. We still have some enterprise product that we run in Q1 of every year, um, but it is not the venture viable, high growth, scalable company. Uh, it, it's a lifestyle business that, you know, if we 10X the business, we can go make a quarter million bucks every year, run it from January to April-ish, and then, you know, get out. Um, we're still figuring out what that looks like. It's also a miserable product to run. <laughs> and so, you know, you balance the... <laughs> is this sexy? Is it the thing that I wanted to go do? Or is this just an opportunity and other ones will come along? Um, but that has gotten us now to, uh, we started Equal Sons, which is a venture studio, you know, mostly a place for us to do client work to pay our bills, which is how we started it. In a perfect world, we get to a place where 50 to 8% of our revenue is driven from internal projects like Coffitivity that live under that banner. Um, and then the, you know, 50, 30 to 50%, 20 to 50% of our other work is the really cool clients that pop up that are interesting for us to plug in with. And, you know, we've heard that we're fractional co-founders is really how people kind of frame the work we do. Uh, we tell people we build products and tell stories. Justin's a full stack developer, very accomplished uh, at this far in his career. I'm a full stack communicator, marketing, PR, communications storytelling narrative um you know can we go into companies and say should you build a product if so how do you build it can we get it built how do we talk about what we built that's kind of how we think about the framework of equal equal sons and we do that for internal projects as well um our clients say you guys are fractional co-founders you know you're used to things being on fire you're happy to to be in a building while it's burning and if you guys can focus on putting that room out or extinguishing that area we can focus on the other part of our business. Can you step in and help us do that on a fractional basis? Um, 
so it's been really cool work. We work with some startups who don't have shit for money typically, uh, but are, are, are fascinating to work with. And right in our wheelhouse, we work with some uh, corporate innovation groups. Um, and that leads very well into the work we're doing right now. Uh, Justin and I got hired back at VCU. Uh, I'm in a part-time capacity um, on the VCU Ventures team. And we just launched a, a product called the Health Innovation Consortium. Uh, VCU Health, one of the largest health systems on the East Coast, is our first partner. Um, and I'm the director of communications. Justin's a CTO. And we've got an awesome team. Uh, the lady running the team is one of our investors and one of our longtime mentors from, again, CycleStay. Um, but we've effectively been tasked with building the innovation platform for VCU Health and then other similar partners that join this collective. Um, and in a weird health crisis, uh, we've become one of the go-to innovation teams within the health system to figure out how to best manage the COVID-19 crisis and build product. Um, so we're prototyping some product for them right now. We just launched a couple products to help aggregate opportunities across the health system. Um, and it's just this, I mean, you talk about the culmination of entrepreneurship and my background as a, a kid all the way up to we have a global pandemic and, and you know, I, without the scientific background, have still ended up in the room with some of these, you know, industry leaders, uh, MDs and administrators from the health system, you know, sitting at the table saying, this is the core or root of the problem as we understand it. Here are the solutions and this is probably the most optimal one for the timeline and the considerations and, you know, the, the patient care that you have to provide. Um, so it's been this crazy experience. And it was just yesterday as Justin and I were touring a facility uh, for some operations that they need to get online in the next two weeks. We kind of looked at each other and we said, how the hell did we end up here? Like two guys who, you know, suits out of an entrepreneurship program helping plan for a global pandemic. Um, and it's really just been hustle. Uh, hustle and the right connections and, you know, being willing to say yes to doing some things that you have confidence that you can figure it out, um, but not necessarily confidence that you have the skill set today. Uh, you still say yes to some of those opportunities and you kind of build the bridge as you're driving over it. Um, that, that's, that's where I am today. And it's been fortunate to be here, but, uh, you know, things are on fire. And quite frankly, it's, it's the normal for me anyway. Uh, so I think it, it makes sense for me to operate in this environment. And so the current state that we're in, I mean, it's a challenge to find, you know, do you meet with, you know, do you take meetings? Do you, uh, you, you want to limit, you know, the exposure and these sorts of things. Where do you think we're at in terms of being able to contain or handle new kind of, you know, new cases, you know, like, where do you think we are in terms of that? Are we, are we getting closer to, I guess, flattening the curve? Do you think we're, are, are we, you know, is there, what, what positive signs do you see, um, whether that's in the country or if that's globally? Yeah, I, you know, I think, ooh, let me see if I can get through this answer without putting my foot in my mouth or pissing anybody off. Um, sure, sure. I think politically, sure. We're, politically, we're still figuring it out, right? Um, I, I don't know that we have particularly handled or given, uh, you know, proper consideration to the crisis. Um, as early as we could have, and we had every indication that we ought to be taking it more seriously. Um, but like what's done is done, that's water under the bridge. We missed that opportunity to be on top of it when we should have. 
at this point, it's a foregone conclusion that we're going to be inundated with cases of COVID-19. Um, and this is, you know, not as a clinical or health-related anybody. This is just, we see the data, right? Um, we can see the trends and, and it's going to be a problem. Um, in a lot of respects, some of the uh, being able to plan for that appropriately is having the right resources on hand. And like none of the infrastructure we have in this country has been designed for a three or 400% increase in providing care. Um, so really at this juncture, we know that it's going to be a problem for most health systems. We're going to be overloaded. And all we can do is plan to, to you know, somebody articulated it well, we're standing neck deep in water and the tsunami is coming in, right? Like we're already starting to get overloaded. The best we can do is plan for worst case scenario and make sure we have the resources on hand. Um, so with respect to do you take meetings, you know, I am certainly not a healthcare provider. I'm not on the front lines of providing care. Uh, but I think given the skill sets that me and Justin and a lot of the really talented people we work with have put together, uh, I, I think it's a, a necessary evil that I go down to the facility to tour the plant. Um, so you do as much work as you can virtually. Uh, we're running, um, I run the pre-accelerator at the Da Vinci Center for Innovation. As I said, we're running a healthcare sprint with students. And, you know, I had some students at their house. They live together, prototype some product uh, and show it to me virtually. And then we were able to, to take that product and see if it's going to work in the application that we need. Um, so, you know, you minimize as much as you can uh, getting in person. Um, but, you know, I think we have to maximize for our ability to provide care. And in the same way, we see restaurant workers and healthcare workers out on the front lines taking exposure. You know, I think the least I can do is, is make sure I keep my distance, but get down to a physical space if need be. Um, but again, you mit mitigate that risk. You wash your hands, you stay away from people, et cetera, um, rather than avoid the risk altogether. No, that makes a lot of sense. So is there anything else that we didn't talk about? I, I feel like um, we did, you know, a lot of, you know, background. I feel like we covered that. Anything that you're working on currently, Equal Suns, speaking, uh, anything you want to touch on? Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, some of the speaker work in, in the same way, you know, uh, when is it acceptable to leave the house? You know, my speaker network, uh, you know, evolved speaker network that I belong to um, has canceled or most of our events, all of our events have been canceled. Right. You know, uh, if I weren't at VCU, I'd be in a tough place, given that I run my mouth for money typically. Um, so, you know, being out and about with people in person is tough to do in a, in a weird time like this. Uh, but, you know, the necessity to pivot, uh, we've we've started doing a lot of our programming virtually. Um, so, you know, we set up a studio in the space that we typically bring people into. Um, and so we're, we're getting together, you know, as and when we can, and then just filming content. Um, and I think the, the tough part, and this is what everybody's trying to navigate right now, is how do you sustain your small business or freelance practice in an economic downturn with a global pandemic where we can't be out and about? Um, and so, you know, I think it's not so much sustain as stabilize, right? Like, how do we just get our feet under us? We took a hit in restaurants and small businesses and boutiques and shops because of lack of traffic. Uh, we've got to get a place to a place where we can stabilize. And I think in the speaker network, we've done that, uh, albeit virtually, 
in a way that allows us to continue operating. And so, you know, it's a lot of just being creative right now. And I, that's, that's what I throw at all of the small businesses listening, thinking, you know, understand what the core of your business is, what the core value you provide is before you start trying to pivot and do a bunch of stuff, like take a second to think about what the core of your business is, what the value you provide to customers is, and then how do you get to a place where you can stabilize your business? There are going to have to be some hard decisions. There are going to be some, some tough calls. that's going to get messy. Uh, but the best thing I heard from a mentor is a bad decision won't kill your company. The lack of a decision will. And I think mm. we're in decision paralysis right now as entrepreneurs. A lot of us are saying, I don't know what to do. I'll do nothing. And it's, you don't know what to do, do something. And I promise if you've put a little bit of intentional thought to what that something is, and you trust the team and the people you have around to pivot if it was the wrong thing, um, that's what's going to keep us moving. It's like riding a bike. Just don't stop pedaling for the most part, you know? Um, so that, that's, that's one of the, the big things I'll throw out as just kind of a, a, a thought for how we might all get through this is keep moving. Um, and, and the last thing I'll say is I, I think from a brand per, and communications perspective, the, the needle we have to thread is how to capitalize on opportunities without the perception of being opportunistic, right? Like everything we do as entrepreneurs is opportunistic. It's our job to be as such. Um, but we can't look like it, especially right now with the global pandemic and, and the societal implications. We have to be really intentional about being transparent about why we're doing a thing. Hey, we're a small business. We're trying to figure out how to survive. We're trying this thing and this might work. It might not, but like we, we're always open to feedback and how can we best provide value for you? You know, I think if we communicate that appropriately, then trying the thing doesn't seem like oh, those guys are trying to get over while people are dying. It's yep. those guys are trying to survive like the rest of us. And we can all as a community do that together. Um, I think that ought to be the narrative. That ought to be how we approach opportunities and, you know, capitalize on them, but, but do it with some grace and some intentionality uh, and some empathy and heart. Uh, and I think that puts us all in a good place. Well said. Well, this has been quite enjoyable, Ace. I really appreciate you for doing this. Um, do you mind letting the listeners know where they can follow you, where they can connect with you? Yeah, um, really easy to find. Ace Callwood, A-C-E-C-A-L-L-W-O-O-D on just about every social media platform. Um, and then if you use the same LinkedIn kind of setup, backslash Ace Callwood, you'll get to me. Um, my email is the same, uh, ace at any of the businesses I've built or acecallwood at Gmail. Um, so I am not hard to find uh, on the internet or otherwise, uh, and always happy to connect with fellow hustlers trying to figure out how to make the thing go. Um, you know, my philosophy is always that I'm not an expert on anything really as much as I'm 15 minutes ahead and can point out potholes. Um, and, and that's the job is, is simply pointing out potholes and thinking about things critically. So happy to do that with anybody who it'd be helpful for. Perfect. I'll go ahead and uh, stop this now and uh, I'll call you back for a recap. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You have uh, you can give me a 